Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Alex. He's the science of hitting on Twitter. We're going to have an in-depth discussion about his portfolio. He's got a really interesting mix of more traditional names and some growthier names in there. He doesn't sell very often. We're going to talk to him after this and find out why. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. You know, Hampton's got some interesting ideas around risk management. I thought the idea that he's unwilling to lose 18% in a 7% position, I thought that was kind of like a, an interesting way of putting it. I think Hampton's done some really good stuff on... Um, on exactly this kind of thing. Like, when do you when do you double down? When do you allowed to double down? Right. And that's a big part of my personal evolution as an investor, for sure, is learning how to try to do that. I mean, I don't know if I have learned how to do that properly, but uh, it's, it's definitely something that's cost me in the past and something that I think is incredibly important to long-term concentrated investing. What, what are the guidelines that you use? How do you think about it? I mean, the guidelines that he kind of lays out are as simple as giving himself a certain percentage of the portfolio that he's willing to put in and as things go lower, he can, you know, average down, but he has kind of restraints on that. And it's basically quantitative from what I understand. He has kind of a risk manager that helps him with that. I think for me, it's more recognizing the the, the situations that he calls out that are particularly susceptible to that risk, you know, whether it's financial leverage, operating leverage in the business. And the other notable one would be, which Nigren kind of talks about, the idea that you know, the stock goes down 20%, your estimate of intrinsic value goes down 10%, yeah. it's more attractive. But those are the situations where they historically have looked and said, these haven't worked out well for us. And I think in my personal experience, I've probably seen something similar. I, I do much better averaging down into something that is probably less company specific and more uh, macro or exogenous in whatever way. So like a, a March type crash where it's not, yeah. news specific to the company it's just everything's on sale it's less of those are really crappy earnings but the stock's really cheap now as opposed to just being kind of cheap i've i've personally struggled with those situations for the most part it's hard it's such a trap i've seen so many guys who are in you know it cyclicals in particular when cyclicals go against you like who knows where the floor is in cyclicals and it, you just want to show that you're right and kind of catch that bottom and it, they just become black holes that suck in far too much of the portfolio Exactly. And I, I've become a lot more comfortable with not having to show my conviction or my confidence through additional purchases, just being comfortable with the fact, hey, this was a 5% position. Now it's a three. And if it works out, I'm still going to do okay. I don't need to make it six today. Yeah. I just think I've, that's something else that for me is, has kind of helped a bit in terms of thinking about that. The other thing that Hempton does, the, another article that he wrote where he talked about, you've got the losers, average losers. Um, that's Paul Tudor Jones, right? He has that pinned up behind yeah. him. And yeah. then he contrasts that with, you know, a lot of value guys will say that they do get most of their, they get a lot of their return from like buying something as the market just doesn't understand it and it's going against them. How, how do you weigh something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a catch-22. I mean, I, I want to make sure as a concentrated investor, I mean, that's a, that's a 
big part of how I think about investing is I want my ideas that are, are right to work. <laughs> and obviously the, the other side of the coin is the things that you're wrong on will most likely hurt you. And I guess it's partly how do you think about limiting that damage? And for me, again, it comes back to, is the business really living up to my thesis? Is it actually performing well? Or is it that idea of it's down 20 and intrinsic values down 10? Those are, those are really where I struggle. So again, I stick with positions that, you know, Wells Fargo is a good example. I've owned it for a long time and I've gotten absolutely crushed on it. I have not bought aggressively into where it's at today because I certainly see how it could not work out long-term at the same time. I still think it's very reasonable here. So it's a meaningful position and you know, it's a, it's a balance of the two, I guess. Talk us through the Wells Fargo position. How do you, how do you see the opportunity at this point? Yeah. So I think at its core, the, the thesis for Wells and kind of for big banks generally, which my, my positioning has expanded a bit to include a bank of America and you know Schwab in certain ways, it's the same kind of idea. Um, Wells, BAC, BAC, JPM, they've taken significant market share over the past you know, 10 plus years, some of it through M&A during the financial crisis, but also because the big banks are in a relatively stronger position relative to their competitors. So the idea of having a low cost, very large deposit base is kind of the starting point. Um, you know, Wells has certainly had their own company specific issues, which I think they're trying to address. And, um, you know, some of the government reports that came out in the last year or two really showed that prior management was was not doing a good job at that and they just completely fumbled the situation so i i I think sharp recognizes that and i think he's done things that are intelligent and probably most important to me he's brought in a number of people that if you go look at their their resumes they seem like they're doing very well in life so they've, they've walked away from situations where they're in a good position and they're going to something in Wells Fargo that is widely regarded as a, a shit show. And, <laughs> but there are people who have worked with him previously, and I think that probably lends itself to them viewing him in a good light. So I, I think that's very encouraging. And you know, the other part of it is, is margins and net interest margins, which have obviously been significantly contracted due to, due to rates. But in the context of a portfolio, which is something I come back to a lot on these if my bank thesis doesn't work out over the long term because rates never go up, I do wonder what that means for the rest of my por- rest of my portfolio. So if cash flows are discounted at a lower rate for much longer periods of time than anybody anticipates, I mean, I guess we'll see what that actually means for prices. But um, I, I think in the context of a portfolio, I'm still comfortable with the banks that I own and the size that they're in. And also something that I don't know how likely it is, but there is also the possibility that over time the economic model changes. It doesn't have to be entirely dependent upon interest incomes. The industry could change. So we'll see. I don't know how likely that is, but I certainly don't think it's possible. I mean, that's the challenge that every time you talk about having a bank in the portfolio, somebody says, what about interest rates? Yeah. Do, you, do, you have, do you have a view? Do you have to have a view? I mean, I don't. Any view that I had would have been uh, washed away now by what's <laughs> happened in the in the subsequent five years that I've probably been involved with banks in any sort of way. Um, the whole idea of a completely flat curve is something that makes absolutely no sense to me. I don't understand it. Um, so I would think slash hope over time you return to something where if you lend money for longer periods of time, you're actually compensated for that. But I could be wrong on that. I, re- I really don't have any intelligent thoughts on stuff like interest rates are really most macro stuff. It's hard to know. I, I watched the 10-year 
pretty closely and it's as we record this today it closed at about 98 and it's it's slowly crept up towards a point i think it's a reasonable proxy for kind of the more traditional value stocks when it seems when the 10 year gets crushed more traditional value gets crushed and the other end of the the sort of growthier names do quite well in that environment i, I don't i i don't I, I don't have any view either i just watch it closely yeah i mean i i I think what was Munger's comment a few years ago? Anybody who anybody who thinks they thinks they know what's going to happen with this is an idiot, basically. I mean, something they've they've kind of voiced times in the past, but I don't really have any thoughts on where it's going to go. But it, it would make sense to me that it's closer to something like it's been over longer periods of time. But we'll see. Your own investment strategy. So you you you, you quote Munger, but do do you how do you characterize what you do? I'd say in general. More than anything else, my focus is long-term as a starting point and concentrated. So, you know, as an example, if you look at my portfolio, the two largest positions are Microsoft and Berkshire. I've owned both of them since 2011, I believe, and they're about 30% of my portfolio. If you look down, you know, the other names in the top five, Disney, Comcast, and Wells, I, I received my Disney shares from owning Fox previously, but I've owned that for years. I've owned Comcast for years. I've owned Wells for years. So so that's probably the starting point is long-term time horizon, which I think lends itself to, you know, not a complete disregard, obviously, for valuation, but it lends itself to businesses that are presumably of high enough quality to generate some earnings growth or a management team that will intelligently allocate capital if the business, you know, if the if the organic growth in the business has been diminished for whatever reason. And I, I think that second part, management, is something that I've become increasingly focused on over time because it's kind of funny. I, I always thought of that Buffett quote, uh, you know, any business that's terrible basically doesn't matter if you have a good manager and vice versa is kind of the idea. And I think over time, it's funny to think back, you know, was, was Berkshire a good business in the 60s or the 70s? most of it becoming a good business was from good management. Think about Amazon and, and first-party retailing. It's, that's not a particularly good business in e-commerce, but the third-party business is a really good business, and AWS became a very good business. So I think part of the idea is that you really want managers who are focused on the long-term and that can intelligently allocate capital. So I, I think about things like that, and then obviously part of being long-term is owning companies where the balance sheet is conservative enough to, to deal with issues like the pandemic or the recession or whatever it may be. So those are probably the underlying things that I think about most. So are you, I mean, as you earn more money, are you continuing to buy this these portfolios? Do you, are you allocating across the portfolio as it's, you know, in proportion to the way that it stands now, or do you allocate new capital to new positions? How do you, how do you handle that? So as I add to my portfolio, I just, you know, highest and best use at that point in time. Um, so and obviously, a lot of these names are in uh, taxable accounts, so that obviously uh, lends itself to a, a higher bar in terms of trimming or selling, things like that. But yeah, as I add new capital, I just look at the next best idea. Um, looking back, if I had added more money to Microsoft, that probably would have been the better move, but I did not foresee what has what has happened over the past 10 years. There was a certain, certainly a good amount of luck in there. So. You deserve some credit for uh, being one of the unicorns who actually went and bought it in 2011 because I, I went along to all of those value investing congresses and it was certainly a thing that people were talking about at the time as being a good value. And I just remember right. thinking I can 
I can I get it, but it's I, I it's not that interesting. I think there are other things around that are more interesting. Little did I know right. it was going to turn into this monster SaaS compounder over the next <laughs> ten years. No, Microsoft's trajectory from two thousand being the greatest thing ever needs to be broken up to 2010, 2011, this is a dinosaur, it's not worth anything, these businesses are gonna implode to today where it's you know kind of back in that 20, 2000 light. It's that, that to me is probably the biggest lesson I've learned in investing and this idea that these businesses today that are pegged as being great and will be great forever, that idea is very flawed in my mind. That is a very rare bird that actually stays great for 10, 20, 50 years. So if you're paying prices that imply something like that, good luck. That's not a game I have any interest in playing. I mean, you need some credit too for holding through that full period though because as a value guy, when some of these valuations creep up, you get the urge to kind of, well, I get the urge to punch out and put it into something cheaper. It's kind of funny. I think about sometimes like the idea that trading is free or very cheap now is probably something that's been a net negative for investors. <laughs> This, this is probably an example of being forced to pay taxes, being a net negative. It certainly impeded my decision-making at certain points. And also, you know, they hired Nadella in 2013, who's widely regarded now as a, a very good CEO. At the time when they hired him, it was not perceived that way. I, they were going to hire someone internal. I don't know if you remember this at all. They were going to hire someone internally, and people were very upset with that. They wanted them to hire Alan Mulally, who was the CEO at Ford. That's right. Or, or the former CEO at Ford, an old white guy. <laughs> Instead, they hired... Uh, Sacha Nadella, who, you know, in the subsequent seven years has, has proven to be a very good CEO. But anyway, so as time went on, and I'm certainly not a tech expert by any stretch of the imagination, but over time, listening to him and looking at the company's results and seeing where they were trying to go, it became more and more apparent that this was less of a, I wrote, I wrote an article when I bought it early on that was called Microsoft Price for Failure. Well, that that, that story was going away but there was reason to believe it was becoming a really good business and that there was, you know, a bright future ahead. It was kind of just what's the what's the fair price for that? And that's an idea I've certainly struggled with along the way. And as it's gotten closer and closer over time, a lot of times I've come back to the idea that with a truly great manager and a very strong competitive position and still a very conservative balance sheet, if the price isn't at a level that's almost you know, hitting a level that's almost absurd. It just makes it really hard for me to sell. I mean, I would consider trimming, but this is something I'd probably let go of very slowly if I was going to sell it or I'd, or I'd give it away in, you know, in terms of donating shares or whatever else. So I don't have to pay the taxes myself. It's too painful. <laughs> it's been a, it's, it's been a funny, because the thesis in 2000, I, I don't remember exactly when, I, I think it was 2011, 12, 13, somewhere through that period. The thesis was not, this is going to become a software as a service, subscription service compounder. And I think that the revenues, in, I, I forget exactly, but when at the time that people were looking at it, the revenues had actually come off. It was one of the very rare periods in Microsoft's whole history where revenues backed off in a year. And I think people might've thought, well, I guess that's, that's game over now. It's not a growth company anymore. Maybe it's transitioning to a value company. I mean, I know that growth and value are joined at the hip. Don't have to remind me, but I, you know, in thinking about what kind of company it was was becoming, and then value guys were pitching it, it, it just wasn't clear that it had this monster growth embedded in it. Yeah, I think at the time, I'm going to get some of this wrong, but you know, a lot of the narrative was iPad was really becoming popular around that time. So there was a big question about what PCs would be if they were even a thing five or 10 years down the road. Microsoft still had not uh, 
released an Office app on Android, or maybe even on iOS as well. They were kind of holding it hostage to support Windows Phone or Windows right. OS, generally speaking, which didn't work and was subsequently changed. You know, they did the Nokia deal just before Balmer left, which was viewed as poor capital allocation, which I think it's, it's, we can fairly say that's correct in hindsight. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was a lot going on. It's like a lot of value names, especially if the capital allocation is questionable, it can be really hard for people to buy into the story. I mean, I, I think I remember Whitney Tilston kind of bailed on it saying, and, and rightly so in some ways, saying the capital allocation here is just not very good. So I'm going to look for, look for somewhere else to invest. So anyways, obviously the story changed over time. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 it was Whitney, I think, who who was pitching the idea of the value investing congress. I didn't, I didn't know that it got out, but then I didn't, I didn't follow it that that closely either. It's one of the, I, I don't know if I've, ne I've never actually encountered anybody else who bought it then and continues to hold it now. So my hats off to you, sir, for that. <laughs> Every once in a while, I get something right. So <laughs> let's let's contrast it with Berkshire because you've got a you, you've you've got a Berkshire holding that you say from about the same period. Um, what was the thesis then? And I mean, I think I think you can make a very good case for Berkshire now. But what was the thesis then? The, the the thesis very early on when I first became an investor was I needed a share to get into the shareholding. <laughs> so, so that was when I first bought it. And then a few years later, I can't remember exactly what happened. Maybe it was the, I think the market might have got hit pretty good on the U.S. debt downgrade. Like it, it I think there was something that was rel rel relevant to the market as a whole, not relevant to Berkshire. But Berkshire's share, share price fell pretty significantly. So there was something in that period where I bought a decent-sized position. And yeah, I've held it ever since because you, know, you guys were talking about an value after hours the other day. The idea that Berkshire is a conglomerate with so many pieces that are – I mean, you look at a business like Geico, it's just been a complete home run over the last 20 years. You look at the railroad, it's been a home run. You look at their other insurance businesses, and there's moving parts in this stuff, and not everything's a home run. But I think more often than not – an IBM is more than offset by an Apple or, you know, something like that. Right. I, I just think the, and surely the, the balance sheet right now is very conservative. And I give other companies like Facebook a lot of flack for their balance sheet. The difference is in my mind, Berkshire is a company that will act aggressively if given the chance to do so. And some people will point to March and say, well, they didn't do anything then one that was very, that was a very quick down and up in a lot of ways. And, you know, we'll see what happens in the next couple quarters or years. But I wouldn't be surprised if the opportunity is uh, there will be other opportunities. Let's put it that way. So and they'll do things like repurchases now. I think they're not they're not so stubborn that they won't change their mind, even if it, I mean, they sold wells. They won't change their mind, even if it makes them look stupid or people will give them crap for it. And you got to respect them for that in my mind. So I still I still greatly enjoy having the possession. In March, uh, the Federal Reserve acted very quickly. The federal government acted very quickly. And I think right. that if you look at what happened through 2007, 8, 9, Berkshire in many ways was the sort of the lender of last resort. And they were, you know, Goldman Sachs was at risk, had to convert to a bank holding company, issue some very expensive prefs to, to Berkshire at the time. And that was, you know, they're one of the better managed investment banks out there and that was sort of emblematic of what was going on across the entire spectrum of finance and a lot uh, the entire financial sector there was nothing like that this time around there's no opportunity to do that right i think that's spot on and you know they they've done deals here and there as they've 
seeing what they thought were good opportunities to do deals. They bought Apple and made whatever it is now, what's probably $90 billion, something like that, $100 billion, somewhere around there. So Greatest trade of all time, I've been saying. <laughs> that was a pretty good winner. I mean, it's hard to complain with that one. You so, got to you got to give the old man credit for like actually deploying that enormous amount of capital in uh, yeah. th- the most visible stock on the stock market, pretty much, and managing to get that kind of return out of it. You know, and this there's some luck in that as well. But getting it in is no, yeah. no easy task. You made the comment the other day that you, when you go back and read the, the the letters, how you read something, you go like I completely missed that last time. Yeah. Him, him talking about Apple, when I went back and listened to this idea of this being the most valuable real estate in the world is more valuable than Fifth Avenue. And you see what has subsequently happened with Apple services business and just how valuable that, that screen is. It's something that when he said it the first time, just kind of completely went over my head or didn't have any impact. And I hear it now and I'm like, that was that was incredibly smart what he thought about this business. And he positioned it in a huge way. And again, people give him crap because they... They think he said he never would invest in tech, even though he's never really said that. But that's what they think he said. And but he just does what he thinks is intelligent, and, and it worked out fantastically, or it has so far. We'll see if they're. Actually, do you think they? So this is one of my questions. Do you think that's that's Buffett selling that supposedly four billion dollars worth, or do you think it's Powder Ted, or no idea? Yeah. So I've I I have gone back and forth with people on Twitter, not in relation, not not right now, not prior to the selling. But I, I went back and forth before there was any selling saying that he had said, like he's pretty clear about the fact that this is their third business and he's never going to sell a share. And then when he sold, you know, a few guys came around to collect the tickets and I said, well, it's not clear like who's done the selling there for that for that exact reason. It's it's five billion on like a 109 or 10 or $11 billion position. It's pretty modest selling really. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not him. I, I'd put my money on it not being him over it being him because I... I mean, I guess we'll see. If, if it is him, I think we'll see that they've, they're going to continue to sell, if that's the case. Because I don't, I don't think he's wanting to sell a, a little bit like that and then step away from the table unless the price changes very significantly. Which I don't, I'm not sure. One thirty-five to to one twenty counts as very significant, but we'll see. It's um, it, it's one of the more difficult things to do as an investor to sell. And I know that we started this conversation talking about selling, but what are your, we're, we're sort of talking about it in the context of oh, I guess we were talking about in the context of buying but how, how do you what's your what's your sell process to the extent that you have one you just avoid taxes at all costs <laughs> I mean there are times I will pay taxes if I think it's if, again if what what I'm buying with the proceeds more than accounts for the cost of paying the tax then I, I definitely will do that I don't let it I don't let the tail like the dog but um, yeah in general I've been in a position where I'm at the point in my life where I'm, I'm adding money to my portfolio so the, the capital needs are relatively rare. So that's limited a lot of my selling. More often than not, I've been selling based on something being a mistake or just reached a price where I just became uncomfortable with it. Um, you know, I sold, I sold, I've owned Yelp on and off at times. I, I sold it a few years ago just because I thought the price got ahead of itself. I own Chipotle and they brought in the new CEO and the stock got a good got a good jump and then they announced a good quarter it got another good jump and i thought it looked pretty good at 400 or 500 wherever it was at so i sold it and now it's at 1300 so that one didn't turn out too well but uh yeah something gets expensive i'll i'll let it go chipotle is a tough one because uh I, I think that it's got it seems to have a little bit of that risk that i, I don't actually think they've done ever done I, I think that you said in your note that it was an e-coli breakout but that 
one of the breakouts that I mean, as I followed it, they had uh, no, the the name's just escaping me, but it's the vi- the norovirus, which mm-hmm. norovirus takes down cruise ships because it's so inf- infectious. But it's not it's not something it's it's not a foodborne illness. It's a you just in the same room cough on somebody and or however it passes get sick and everybody gets sick in the vicinity. And I think one, at least one of their outbreaks was norovirus. And I thought that was, gee, that's unlucky because that's probably not anything wrong with their food preparation. I don't think there's anything wrong with their food preparation, but they've got this, they've now got a little bit of a reputation like that. So anything that happens, they get, there's some risk in the stock, I thought. Yeah, apparently Mr. Market does not agree right now. (laughs) There's no risk anywhere anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's the... For me, that's that's one of the stocks of like the epitome of this current cycle, and I'm probably bitter because I owned it. But <laughs> it's just a the story is very clean. They have a unit growth story, they have a comp story, they have a margin story. It's a, it's a good business in terms of the cash that it generates. And as those have all come into sight as being positives, the valuation has just gone from something that I think most people would objectively say is at least reasonable to something that now they're going to need to execute on everything. And even then, I mean, we'll see what kind of returns you get over five to 10 years. If they execute very well, you might get 10% a year. Um, we'll see. I, it's, it's just one of those names for me. When, when I have to underwrite everything going great, just to get pretty average returns, it's hard to justify continuing to own it. And on the other hand, if I can buy things where even if things don't go very well at all, I can get decent returns. Well, I'm, I'm going to naturally be attracted to those, but the last, last year or two has made doing that, uh, a bit painful, as you've seen. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a. I think in some ways the market is a little bit like the market in the early two thousands, in the sense, or in the in the late nineteen nineties, in the sense that there's no question that these businesses are very, very good businesses and are probably going to grow at very high rates for a fairly long period of time. It's just that the stock prices have, I think, got ahead of even that kind of that exceptional growth and so you can have this period like the first decade of the 2000s we just drifted sideways with a lot of volatility in a lot of these names and it was only sort of 2013 14 15 that they really started to take off again and so it's a very long period of time where you nothing much is happening even though the stocks do, the business underneath is doing quite well yeah and i think for you know for the bigger names you can get to a point where the math it's kind of you know, if you look at a Microsoft in the 2000, in 2000 or something, you reach a point where the math becomes, it just gets illogical at a certain point. But for some of the smaller stuff, people are able to buy into stories that are, you know, a lot harder to disprove. I think history would show that massive ta- massive TAMs lend themselves to a lot of competition, a lot of right. overlap. Um, you don't know what, you know, steady state economics look like. And for a lot of these businesses, to the extent they end up being good businesses, you're going to have managers in there who probably not the best at capital allocation. And that starts to become really important when you get to, if it works, that starts to become really important. You need someone in charge who is going to intelligently allocate that capital. And again, look at Microsoft in the late nineties or through the two thousands, they built up a huge balance sheet and whether or not it was intelligently used or if it just sat there stranded with shareholders unable to get their hands on it for 10 or 15 years that that's not a that can be very costly so that's where you get a zune right you You remember the zune yes i do i never had one but uh (laughs) yes i do remember it so 
Let's talk about some of the other names you've got in there. Disney, um, you said you got that in the, in the Fox A spinoff? Yeah, I got it. So when, when, when Disney bought the majority of Fox's assets, there was you know, the, the option to elect to take stock, to take cash or some combo. Um, I took shares as part of that deal. And I think, you know, part of the thinking now in my mind is obviously they they released Disney Plus and a couple of their other D2C assets. They've had significant, you know, growth. It's super early, but they've had significant growth so far in terms of signups. And for me, I keep coming back to the idea that having really great IP and a really great monetization engine is I'd rather approach the direct-to-consumer video problem or figuring out the business there. I'd rather approach it from that angle than having really great technology like Netflix unquestionably has. And granted, they have a huge user base, and that will lend itself to stuff like Cobra Kai and you that you know they, they license or buy from others, and then they increase the audience 5x or 10x or 20x. So those are certainly very real advantages. But as I keep coming back to it personally... I like the idea of owning the parks business, of owning just really great IP. Now, with that said, Disney didn't own Pixar 20 years ago. They didn't own Marvel 20 years ago. They didn't own Lucasfilm 20 years ago. So, and, I, and Berkshire did own it in the late 90s, and they sold. And I think part of the reason is recognizing that reality, that this business is, in my mind, definitely not foolproof. It requires continued nurturing of those key brands, that key IP, and potentially adding stuff over time. That's that I think the people they have in charge of Marvel right now, um, and my friend Francisco Oliveira can talk about this a lot more than I can. But the people they have in charge are the right people, and they're they're nurturing those franchises. And I think it continues to show in the results. It was sort of a a meme in the late '90s that uh, a lot of the value migrates from the owners of the distribution to the content producers because content tends to be unique, whereas distribution tends to be there's a little bit more distribution. And I, I think that that I I couldn't agree more that it's it's a content game and they have been very good at producing it. But there, there was that notable period before they bought Pixar where they just hadn't had a Disney princess worthwhile for a little while. No criticism right. of the Disney princesses they had, but that's sort of the business where, you know, they get a young, my daughter, she falls in love with the princess of the day and then that's what gets her into that ecosystem. And if they miss, right. then she's not part of that ecosystem and it's hard to sort of get them back in as they get older. But they've seen, yeah, so. their purchases have been quite good, like Star Wars and Pixar, Marvel, all great acquisitions. Yeah, I think Iger said, and it's the former CEO, Bob Iger, said in his book, he, he went before the board, and this was very early after he became CEO, and he, he essentially told them, if we don't do this Pixar deal, this this could be the end of this company. I mean, that might not have been that drastic, but he said, this is, this is a very important deal. We have to do this because we've lost that animation. We've lost that IP engine that we have to have for this company to work. And him him doing that deal and then subsequently – Lucasfilm and Marvel were obviously master strokes that, you know, we'll see how Fox turns out, but he, he certainly bought himself a bit of cover by doing those those three deals at what turned out to be you know, incredibly good prices. They, they looked expensive, I think. They looked optically expensive yeah. at the time. Pixar looked expensive, I think. Right. Yeah. But ultimately they, they worthwhile. Quite well. Yeah. Um, what about Comcast? Just to, just to pivot perhaps a little bit more to distribution rather than uh, content. Yeah, Comcast has been, you know, I, th I think it kind of similar to Microsoft. I think it was pretty objectively cheap in the last 
few years when it got down in the low 30s, if, if you believe that the cable business has the staying power and the ability to keep adding customers. And as we're seeing now, you know, they're adding customers and the capital intensity of the business is declining as they focus more on broadband and less on pay TV. So the cash flows coming out of that segment are increasing, you know, around 10% a year, double digits. So they're getting really good growth in the core business. The knockdown Comcast just has been that their M&A track record, especially you know, the last two big deals were NBCU, which they bought from General Electric, and uh, it was two separate parts of the transaction, but around the financial crisis shortly thereafter. And then more recently, they bought Sky, which is a, a business in Europe. So the knock on them, I think, from most market participants' perspective, or at least people on FinTwit, has been <laughs> that they should run the cable business and and lever up and, you know, follow that strategy as opposed to being more of a diversified media company. And I, what you're seeing now with NBCU is they're in this position where they're trying to compete in direct to consumer with Peacock, which is, you know, something that they're trying to use their distribution muscle to make it strong. And they have some good IP stuff like the office and fast and furious and other things that they'll put on there. But the big question is going to be, can this really compete or not? And, I think inevitably this will lend itself to a position where they're either going to have to invest much more aggressively to stand up that business and try to really compete and win, which who knows if that will even happen if they do that, or they'll need to find another route, whether that means licensing content to, you know, Hulu or Netflix or obviously Hulu's part of Disney. But so they're going to have to make a decision there. And at the same time, they have, you know, X1 is their pay TV distribution, essentially. It's their set-top box. I guess it would be like an OS. Um, you know, the reporting now is they're trying to trying to work with Walmart to make X1 a standard on some of their smart TVs. So they're essentially getting in a position where they're going to compete more directly with someone like Roku. And in my mind, it's kind of the same thing as NBCU. You're going to be in a position where you need to invest more money or you need to not play in the game. So I think a lot of people don't like the fact that the cash flows from the really good business are potentially being right. converted to businesses with less clear of a future. So I'm a little more comfortable with it than some. Um, I think the NBCU deal from a dollar's perspective has almost certainly been at least a decent one. And they paid somewhere around $30 billion for the business. It's collectively generated uh, north of $40 billion in EBIT since they bought it. So it's, and they still have the parks business. They still have the content businesses, which granted are certainly facing structural pressures to some extent. So we'll see. Um, I think management thinks about the long term, and I think in general the track record is objectively pretty decent, but this Sky deal has certainly put that in question, and depending how you think about NBCU, that's also put it in question as well. Let's uh, just take a step back for a moment. And what, what can you tell me a little bit about your background? What, how, did you, how did you develop the sort of strategy that you have, uh, have now? So going all the way back, well, I grew up in South Florida, and when, I, when it was time to go to college, I went to the University of Florida, and I really didn't have any sense for what I was going to do. And my dad's a plumber, so I decided I'd go to school for building construction. <laughs> and uh, I did that for a couple semesters, and I realized, nope, this, this wasn't it. Um, so around that time, I, I don't honestly remember how. Somehow I stumbled across the Berkshire letters or Warren Buffett and started reading the letters and another buddy of mine did as well. So, you know, fast forward like a year later, 
we drove from Gainesville to Omaha for one of the Berkshire meetings. How, how fast um, is that? It's like 20 hours, something oh. like that. So we drove, yeah, we, I think we slept in Walmart parking lots along, along the way. Um, and as I remember, we went to the meeting and just like came home immediately after. So, so we, we drove 40 hours for, uh, <laughs> just know, for the, for, just for the question, not, not to stay the night or anything to see any of the, yeah. the shenanigans. I mean, we were in college, we had no money, so we couldn't really stay the night. <laughs> um, so yeah, so but anyways, I, I've been hooked ever since then. And you know, around that same time, a couple friends and I, we started a, a business in college that was, I don't know if you're familiar with StubHub, but it was kind of the equivalent of a, a StubHub, like a ticket website, but it was specifically for uh, student tickets to college football games because student tickets have certain restrictions in terms of you know, only students can use them or someone with a student ID. Right. So we... We essentially paid somebody to build a website because none of us knew how to do that. And we tried to stand up this business. Long story short, it, it, it did not work out. But <laughs> that's kind of when my business and finance interest kind of started to bloom. And I also started writing articles around that time as well. So, yeah, all those things together, that was that was 10 years ago now or 10 plus years ago now. So, But I've just continued to kind of plug along and just really enjoy it. It's fun. <laughs> And without disclosing your employer, what, what do you what do you do? What's your day job? So I work for an investment advisor. I, I work as a research analyst. I basically spend all my this, the stuff I write about and the stuff I talk about on Twitter or companies that I'm, I'm following at work and you know, following on the weekends, following all the time. So yeah, I, just, I research equities almost exclusively. So uh, I saw you, you write uh, pretty regularly for Guru Focus, and uh, I, I read your articles when they come out. They're great. Um, I, sh- I saw you wrote, I, it's not in your holdings, but uh, Schwab was one of your more recent articles in the last sort of six months or so, or 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. Do you want to go through the thesis for, for Schwab? Yeah, so, you know, at a high level, I think the, the thesis on Schwab is that they built a platform that, I mean, simply by looking at assets and flows, has become very attractive for uh, end customers and end customers would be their individual retail customers or people like investment advisors where they can, you know, custody their assets. Um, So they've grown their asset base very significantly over time. Also over time, which you can see if you look at their investor decks, they'll show revenues as a percentage of client assets has consistently trailed down over time. So they're sharing more of the economics with their customers but so of expenses. So they've held a pretty steady, uh, you know, uh, difference between those two. So it's a business where as they grow, they're passing on the benefits to their end customers, but they're also obviously keeping some of the benefit for themselves. So it's a business where as they scale, I think the mode is widening. Right. At the same time, their CEO, Walt Bettinger, I, if you go listen to his conference calls and listen to him for a bit of time, which just plays into a lot of the investments I have, I. I'll listen to people for a while and get comfortable with them. And so I don't just one day buy a five or 10% position. I, I'll really follow people for a while. And he's the kind of person that as I listen to him and as I read what he wrote in the past or said in the past, he strikes me as someone who's very honest, who has a very good understanding of who they are and what they're trying to do and why they deserve to win in the certain places, spaces that they play in. Um, so I, I built an appreciation for him and also, Schwab has been building up Schwab Bank, which is, you know, long story short, it's the kind of business where they're going to earn a spread on on margin, just like a traditional, you know, bank down the street. 
So because of that transition, as they've been growing the business over the past 10 years, you know, I forget the dates when rates have gone up and gone back down. The story started to work. You finally saw rates come higher. This would be a handful of years ago, you might remember. But then obviously that turned back again. So when that happened, the stock had started to take off as the earnings power was going to start to finally flow through. Well, it, as that turned back, the stock got what I what I thought was cheap again. So uh, I started buying a bit then. But that's kind of a piece at a high level. Um let's talk about one of the uh, one of Bill's favorites uh curate <laughs> yeah uh curate is very different from most of my ideas as I just told you I, I typically follow stuff for a while and get a really good feel for management and the business uh curate I knew nothing about it probably I don't know two three months ago Bill Bill and Francisco Oliveira and I we, we talk constantly so we started talking about it amongst the three of us and then uh, Bill hooked me up with Mike Mitchell, who's ignore ignore narrative on Twitter. Yep. So we got on a, got on a call with him, and he he helped me understand even further kind of the history of this business. And you know, I'm familiar with the Liberty guys at a high level, and it it just became clear that the person in charge of the capital allocation is someone with the right incentives. As I looked at the results of the business over the past five to ten years. I've seen something similar with Fox too, which I previously owned and I own a very small stake in now. Fox News has sort of bucked the trend of pay TV declines in the United States. And that part partly speaks to demographics and it partly speaks to the economics of their business, the ability to contract you know, larger affiliate fees. The problem with that name and why I've kind of, kind of grown uh, away from it is part of their costs and the remainder of the business, mainly sports rights, are not under their control. And... So that, that's really pushed me away from the name. But anyways, on Curate, as you look at the results over the past five years, you go, well, the pay TV universe has declined by 20%. Why are their revenues flat to up or you know whatever the metric is? So it kind of gave me the idea that maybe that's not the whole story. So as I kept digging in and I looked at this transaction they were getting ready to do, I understood some of the, you know, some of the things that might impact supply and demand for the name in the short term, as I thought about all those things, it, to me, it just kind of made sense that this was a reasonable, a reasonable place to invest. So I made it a reasonably large position, and you know they they just they just reported it was a really good quarter, which shouldn't be too unexpected given that they kind of benefited from the pandemic in a certain way. Um, but yeah, it's definitely different than what I usually do, but it's the thing I've bought most recently in any size. Did you did you size it up? Uh, knowing that you're going to get a big capital return, do you, do yeah, you like yeah. to take that into the calculation? And then, so it was yeah. initially quite a big position because it's it's nine percent. Oh, sorry, it's eight uh, percent. Terrible, six percent. And we're getting closer. <laughs> yeah, so I think it was around. I guess it was around ten, something like that. But yeah, then they paid. They gave the preferred, and then they paid the cash distribution. So I meant to so ask yeah, you. That was uh, good. I just I meant to ask you about Schwab. Just in the you know value had this little. We're recording this on November 11th. Value had this little bounce uh, on Monday, and a few of the a few of the platforms, and I think I saw some people complaining about Schwab in particular on Twitter. A few of them seem to have some difficulties trading through it. Do you have any idea what what drove that? There's no reason necessary why you would. I just wondered if anybody else did. Yeah, I don't. I haven't. I've, I saw people talking about it. I haven't seen anything in particular. I use Fidelity, and I pulled up my account on 
whatever the crazy day was Monday. Yeah. I pulled up my, I pulled up my account and flashed my balance at zero. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't too fond. It was a really that. bad day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I, the market's up like 5%. How'd I lose all my money? <laughs> I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was unique to Schwab. It seemed to be something that was e- endemic to a lot of the, and it's, it's not, it's not uncommon that on these really big volatile right. days or, you know, Robin Hood has had that problem a few times now where they weren't able to trade. I don't know what does it do. Maybe they just get overwhelmed with people wanting to do stuff. Yeah, it must be. It must just be too much activity or something along those lines. But I haven't read anything but about why it happens. But yeah, I saw that it, I saw that it was happening. Um, some, some more sort of uh, online names. You've got three here. If Facebook, uh, Yelp and Booking. I see that Booking's done... From your tweets, it's actually booking's done really well, uh, <laughs> despite the pandemic. But what's the uh, just very quickly? What's the kind of the thesis is there? Yeah, so on booking, the thesis really boils down to uh, structural shift, stru- structural change towards uh, OTAs, online travel agencies, and then you know booking is kind of unique because their primary business is in Europe, which is a different kind of hotel market than the United States is much, much less branded, much more independent hotels and booking essentially becomes their marketing platform. So that's right. the way they, that's the way they get customers. So bookings business has the number of room nights booked on the platform as I was I tweeted today has gone up from 2010 to last year, it's gone up like nine X, something like that. So it's grown significantly, you know, as they said on, they said on the most recent call, they still have a single digit share of, of, kind of the global market and i think they said it's around 10 percent in europe i believe they said um so i think it's a good business and the pandemic i mean they've gotten absolutely crushed and um so it's a name that i own it's, it's not a it's not a huge position i've i've always struggled with the idea that what the u.s hotel market looks like and i'm obviously biased because of my lens as someone who's who lives in the united states but i've always wondered if the hotel market in somewhere like Europe that's more independent is going to become more like the U S where you have through consolidation or something like that. Yeah. The Marriott's and the Hilton's of the world would go out and either buy or sign deals with these, you know, these independent chains and could something like the pandemic potentially accelerate that development. I, I don't think that's out of the question. So it's a name that I, I don't think I added to it in March. It got down to probably 12 or 1300. I think some of those fears kind of kept me on the sidelines and just sitting with the position I already had. But yeah, it's had a great run here in the last. It, it, it certainly got that that Pfizer bounce or whatever we're calling it. <laughs> <laughs> how about uh, uh, how about Yelp? Because that's that's one I don't know particularly well, but f- folks might know. I mean, yeah, I know so the business. I just uh, don't know the. I don't know the. I know what it is. I just don't know the business particularly well. So as, yeah. So as you know, Yelp is a consumer review platform. It's probably most well known for restaurants and. For a long time, I'd argue that's really all it was. It really, it really wasn't a business, or it was unclear what the business was. So it came public. Uh, I, I think it was in, it was in the early 2010. I want to say 2014 for some reason. I might be wrong, but anyway. So it, it had a huge run. It was, a, it was a loved, you know, growth story, much like Groupon, a bunch of other names quite like this. And as that did not pan out, it fell from 90 to. You know, it's been in between probably 50 and 50, 15 and 50 over the past handful of years. Um, I think what's interesting about Yelp outside of the valuation, because it goes goes through these these swings and they have about $8 to share in cash. And, you know, they, they got offers before they went public from Yahoo and Google for roughly a billion dollars. So 
you know, between those two components, you can get to a 15 or $20 stock price, assuming that's even relevant today. Who knows if it is, but um, I think what's interesting about Yelp is for a long time, this was a call small businesses and try to sell them ads type business. And I think if you look at the numbers, it's probably pretty apparent that that was never going to be a very good business on its own unless they got really, really big, which I don't know if that's particularly realistic either. So what's happened since then is they've shifted into self-serve ads for you know SMBs, and they've also focused a lot more on multi-location, kind of regional and, and national companies for different types of you know advertising products, what you'd see in the list when you search for coffee shop or something. But they've also added other things on top of that to try to make the product more useful. An example might be if you're a local, um, uh, you know, carpenter or something like that, somebody who, who builds things or, home, you know, uh, architect, you can, you can kind of have portfolio profiles that show a project that you did. So you can call out things like that in a certain way that make your profile a little better or different. Um, another example in the home and local space would be request a quote where you can, you know, you can say, Hey, my uh there's something wrong with my sink you can take a picture of it you can send it to a, a, a local plumber and when you do that yelp will ask you do you want to send this to these other highly rated plumbers in your area so that's kind of a new advertising product for them so they've gotten away from the what i would say is a not very good user experience in terms of just throwing two restaurants that paid for those top slots it's kind of getting replaced with stuff that is helping the transaction be completed or highlights the business and, you know, on some of the business stuff, people, people who own small businesses might not love to hear this, but I think it's almost like the, the idea of, you know, you're at a parade and you stand on your tippy toes yeah. and I'm behind you and now, now I need to stand on mine. In some ways, it is that kind of business. If people can stand out and you're competing with them, you might need to spend to stand out as well. So I think it's, we'll see if this works, but I think there's signs that this new idea of their business model may work in a way that the previous business model in my mind probably never would. And a good, a good example of this in numbers is, you know, they're still obviously dealing with the pandemic, but last quarter revenues were down mid-teens. Their sales force was down about 45%. So they're, they're really seeing more sales productivity and, and they don't think that they're going to add a meaningful number of people as, as they get through the back end of this. So they had, there was some controversy for a while, right? In the sense that They'd get a, a business would get a bad review, and then they'd contact them and say, "Hey, we can take care of that bad review for you." Yeah, so this is something the company's uh, always said is not true, and I think my thoughts on it are probably: if you have a business that is relying upon upon hiring a bunch of recently graduated college kids, and you tell them you're going to pay them based on uh, winning a certain amount of business. Uh, if you do not watch those people closely, you might have some behavior that is not what you hope to encourage. So uh, who knows if it's all real? I would assume obviously some of it is, but yeah, that's that's one of those things where you need to you need to make sure you have systems in place to encourage uh, good behavior or discourage bad behavior. Hey, Alex, uh, this is coming up on time. It's absolutely fascinating uh, chatting to you about the portfolio. If folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Best way to do it is uh, Twitter. You can reach out, reach out to me. It's uh, T-S-O-H, the science of hitting underscore investing. Um, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to do it. And then I write the guru-focused articles, five, five or 10 articles a month. So you can always go there and read them. Under the science of hitting as well. Yeah. Alex, science of hitting, thank you very much.
Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally did this. Yeah, me too. <laughs>